Let's open our Bibles this morning to John chapter 3. A few weeks ago, we finished the first letter of Paul to Timothy, and I was headed to the epistle of Titus, but I sensed the need to cover some encounters that Christ had with different individuals in the Bible. And I love the way that Jesus purposely meets these people. He introduces himself as the one who can meet their greatest need. We looked at the maniac of Gadara who needed to be radically changed by the power of the gospel, and he was. The woman at the well in Samaria needed to find living water so she would never thirst, and she found Christ. The leper, another Samaritan, needed more than cleansing from his leprosy. He needed to be cleansed from his sin, which resulted in turning to Christ with thankful worship. Today I'd like us to look in John chapter 3 and go back to something that took place early in the ministry of Jesus. It happened just before the encounter with the woman at Samaria. It's his meeting with Nicodemus. John 3 is probably one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. When it comes to the good news or the gospel of salvation, I don't think there's a there's a person who's ever been to a baseball game who hasn't seen that, seen that poster behind home plate, John chapter 3, verse 16. The verse is most often shared with the lost because of its simplicity and its thoroughness in presenting the gospel in a small a nugget. We find the setting of this encounter of Jesus with Nicodemus in the last verses of chapter 2. Jesus was in Jerusalem. He was there to observe the Passover. Many had seen the miracles that he had done, and it says they believed. But Jesus didn't commit himself because it says he knew all men. In other words, Jesus knew that many were following just because of the miraculous things that they were seeing. They weren't following him to make Jesus Christ their savior, to accept him as the son of God that he preached that he was, and he is. He's the divine son of God. And I I love in the the last chapters of John 20, verse 31, he's talking about the things that are written, recorded in scripture, the miracles that are recorded here. And he said, these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That tells me, number one, we don't need more miracles today. They're recorded in scripture for us. Number two, that they're there for us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's the belief that he's looking for. The title of the message this morning, A Pharisee Comes to Christ. We'll be looking at just verses 1 through 15 It culminates with verse 16, and I hope that verse will be in your mind and on your heart throughout the week. But first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see a man in need. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Nicodemus represents each one of us. He was a well-educated and well-respected man. He had a prestigious position in the community. People looked up to him. You say, I'm nothing like that. Well, he represents each of us because he was a sinner. We're all born in sin. He needed to trust Jesus Christ as his Savior. He needed what the Bible calls the new birth. Nicodemus may not have recognized his need. 
He may have thought, I'm really not all that bad. I'm doing my best. Compared to others in Israel, I'm pretty good. But he had a tremendous need. He lacked something. And again, as we've seen in the other encounters of Jesus, Jesus is the only one that can meet that need, the greatest need of man. Who was Nicodemus? It says that he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They weren't like the Sadducees because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in life after death. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They were trying to be obedient to the word of God. In fact, in order to keep the law, the Pharisees had another book of writings called the Mishnah. And that provided, it was called or considered a hedge about the law. It would keep someone from breaking the law because it stopped them sooner than that, than that law. Later, there was a, another hedge about that hedge called the Gemara. And that was oral tradition. It was a rabbinical commentary on the Mishnah. Just to give an example of how the Pharisees thought, one of the laws that was in that Mishnah uh, was that a woman should not look in a mirror or a looking glass on the Sabbath. And the reason was she might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck that hair, which would be working on the Sabbath day, which was forbidden. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus held the Pharisees up as the highest standard for those who are attempting to live a, a right life. Jesus said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The problem was for Pharisees then and now is that no one can keep the law. And no one can be righteous by their own efforts. And when anyone he thinks he can or will attempt that, it always produces arrogance and pride. He's a Pharisee. He's also called a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the 70-member council of Israel. Uh, it was their religious and political government. In Jesus' days, their decisions were backed by the Roman government. And Jesus later will refer to Nicodemus in verse 9 as a master of Israel. The word master there is didaskalos. Didasko is the verb to teach. And so he was someone who knew the law. He could teach it. He could explain it to others. Arno Gabeline in his commentary writes, Nicodemus had the reputation in his generation of being a leading, deeply educated teacher to whom the people looked for instruction and guidance. John will reveal more about Nicodemus, and many of you who have read ahead know what takes place later in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, the Pharisees and the chief priests were looking at Jesus as a threat. They wanted Rome to arrest him. But the common people, the Bible says, the common people heard him gladly. And they said, never man spake like this man. And Nicodemus persuaded the Pharisees to, to wait, the council to wait, by asking in verse 51 of John 7, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? Nicodemus had wisdom. He was persuasive. He had authority. People listened to him. Then toward the end of the Gospel of John in chapter 19, 
we'll see Nicodemus again, who brings a hundred pounds of, of myrrh and aloes for the burial of Christ. He was obviously a man who loved Christ, who was born again, and the new birth had changed him. We don't really know why he decided to come in this particular night, at night, to meet Jesus. Maybe the reasons aren't given so that we can all kind of plug in our own experience of coming to Christ and we can blow away all the excuses that people have for not coming. Some say that Nicodemus came at night because he was so busy. He was busy all day long. He was an important leader. Maybe he came at night because that's all his schedule would allow. Don't ever let your schedule keep you from coming to Christ. It's amazing how people can get caught up with what they have to do during a day and they end up laying their head on their deathbed not having had time to come to Christ. Some say he may have come secretly at night because he didn't want others to see him. What would it look like for a ruler of the Jews who was a teacher who had all the answers to come to talk with Jesus? Well, again... We can dissuade you of that excuse. Don't let others think what others think keep you from coming to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Some say that Nicodemus was just being polite. He didn't want to interrupt Christ. He knew that he was busy with all of his teaching Don't ever think that Jesus is too busy for you. He has time for you. He died for you as an individual. He loves you. He wants you to come to him. Maybe Nicodemus just wanted an uninterrupted time with Christ. That's not an excuse. That's a great thing. Whatever the reasons may have been, the important thing is Nicodemus came. You may have never trusted Christ as your own personal Savior yet. And the invitation is for you. Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. You'll find him to be the answer to your greatest need, whether you recognize that need or not. Warren Wiersbe says, Nicodemus coming by night was a symbol of the unsaved man. He is in the dark spiritually. We can see the opening remarks that what Nicodemus thought about Jesus. He calls him rabbi. He said, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, that God had sent him. Bible Knowledge Commentary says the titles rabbi and teacher are polite and flattering on the one hand, but they showed Nicodemus' Nicodemus's inadequate comprehension of who Jesus really was. Nicodemus was probably chosen by others in the Sanhedrin, other Pharisees or Sadducees, to go and find out what Jesus was teaching. He may have volunteered for that task. But he included himself with the others when he said, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, in verse 2. The Sanhedrin wanted to find out who Christ was. They were experts of the Old Testament law, And when you think about it, they were coming to the one who was the lawgiver. (laughs) Sent by his father to die for the sins of mankind. Nicodemus admitted that they knew 
God had given Jesus power to do these miracles. He seems to be on the right path. He suspected that God sent Jesus, that God was with him, and that God's, the power that he had was from God. Nicodemus knew the scriptures. A lot of people today are like Nicodemus. Religious, nice people, but lost. Notice the Savior with the answer. Jesus got right to the point. He brought Nicodemus to see what his great need was. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you think Nicodemus thought with those words? He cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, this new birth must be something very important. What does it mean to be born again? In John 19 and verse 11, the word again is translated from above. It's the word anothen. Jesus answered, thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. So this new birth is something that God is the one in charge of. We're born from above in this new birth. In Galatians 4.9, it's translated again. That is, from the start. And so here is a case that I think probably both nuances of the word can be, can be incorporated and, and both are true. The new birth is from above. It's God's work. When a person is saved, he's born from above. And the new birth is a new life. It's a new beginning. There's a second birth that needs to take place. That's what it is. Without this new birth, Nicodemus heard that word cannot. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus began that statement with the words, verily, verily. The word amen. This is something that is true. This is something that is trustworthy. What's the meaning of the phrase, the kingdom of God? Is it God's literal rule over all the earth? In the thousand years known as the millennium? Is it God's literal rule in heaven forever and ever and ever? His eternal rule? Is it God's spiritual rule? His current or present rule in the hearts of men and women who bow the knee to him? I think probably all of the above. Now, you'll hear some Bible students uh, say that the kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you've read that. Matthew, in his gospel, is the only writer to use the kingdom of heaven. The phrase kingdom of God is found in the other synoptic gospels as well. Vine's expository Bible dictionary, and Vine's had this view that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven were different, uh, say that the kingdom of heaven refers to that millennial rule, the thousand-year rule of, of Christ on earth, and, and that the kingdom of heaven, uh, or the kingdom of God, is his, is his perfect rule all, all the time, ruling all the time. But if we go to Matthew chapter 19 and verses 23 and 24, we find a very interesting uh, combination of verses. And in these two verses, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are both used and they're used synonymously. So if someone ever asks you, do you think there's a difference between the two? Say, let's look at Matthew 19, 23 and 24. Jesus said to his disciples, Verily I say unto you that the rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Both of them are, are true of the rich man, trusting in his riches. He can't be saved. It's impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, used synonymously here. So what Jesus was telling Nicodemus is absolutely true for everyone listening to these words this morning. The only way to reach God's kingdom, the only way to enter heaven, is to be born again. Let's look at the explanation of salvation, which takes place in verses 4 through 15, the bulk of the chapter. Here, Jesus will use three illustrations to explain to Nicodemus what it means to be born again. First illustration, illustration is in verses 4 through 7. The new birth is, is likened to a person's first birth. Do you remember your first birth? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, but you're told about it. Okay? So here's the illustration. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Now, it's possible for Gentiles to be born again as proselytes into Judaism. But how is a Jew to be born again? And the question of Nicodemus shows his confusion. Some think he was being sarcastic. <laughs> Can a man be born again? Can he enter his mother's womb and be born again physically? But I think the answer that Jesus gives by saying, marvel not seems to indicate that Nicodemus really can't understand what Jesus is trying to explain. There's a physical birth. There's a spiritual birth. Being born of water is talking about the physical birth. Being born of the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, is the spiritual birth. When man is born the first time physically, he's born as a sinner. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Every person enters this world as a sinner. Because we're sinners, we deserve death. Physical death is separation from, uh, of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is a separation from God for eternity. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We generally think of that as physical death, but it's also spiritual death because of the second half of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has provided this gift. Eternal life is a gift, and he's done it through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. That's the only way we can have eternal life. The new birth is a spiritual birth. Man must be born again spiritually to enter God's kingdom. Human flesh gives birth to humanity. The Holy Spirit of God is the only one who can give spiritual birth and spiritual life. Peter tells us a little bit of how that takes place, 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The best means that you can 
take to a person that needs to be born again, needs to be saved, is the scripture, the word of God. Let them hear what God says. It's a simple plan of salvation. We've used verses in Romans already this morning to tell us that we're sinners, to tell us our need for Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's the simplicity of the gospel. That's what people need to hear. Second illustration in verse 8, the new birth is likened to the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Some think that it could have been as Jesus was talking to Nicodemus here in Jerusalem that the evening breeze was blowing. And Jesus often used simple things of those around him to illustrate important truths. The wind blows where it listeth, where it, where it wills, where it wants to blow. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. The, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same in the Greek New Testament. And as we go through this passage, that's what would have been said, pneuma, wind and spirit. Here, the lesson is this. You can't make the wind blow a certain direction, neither can you control how the Spirit of God works. Some people try. Maybe you've seen it on the, the televangelist. Uh, you've seen it on his face. You've heard it in his voice. He puts on this spiritual air and tries to make others think that God is at work because of his voice. But God's Spirit works independently. We cannot force God to work. We can put ourselves in a place where our sins are confessed and we've been praying for God to work. And God answers prayer. But the Spirit works independently. It's wonderful to be in a service when you know God's at work. You know, when that happens, and you look back and say, how did that happen? Usually, always, man had nothing to do with it. We simply observe the, the effects of the Spirit on God's people's lives. When the Spirit moves, he convicts people to repent and to turn to Christ. When the Spirit moves, he changes lives dramatically from within. And we can see the effects. We can see changed lives and changed families. External religious rituals will never affect permanent change. The wind of God must blow. The Spirit of God must move. Here Nicodemus asks another question, and Jesus answers in verses 9 through 13. Nicodemus answered, uh, answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, we've seen that so many times in this conversation, we need to speak truth, that's what Christ is doing. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Jesus answers the question of Nicodemus with a question of his own. 
when he asks, aren't you a master of Israel? He uses the definite article. Aren't you the master of Israel? Aren't you the most distinguished teacher? Again, he's one of the most important leaders in all of Israel at this time. Bible Knowledge Commentary says, The nation's outstanding teacher ought to understand how God, by his sovereign grace, can give someone a new heart. And there are passages in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 10.6, Jeremiah 31.33, that talk about this new heart. He moves now to the illustration, the third illustration, verses 14 and 15. And here he likens the new birth to the children of Israel looking at the brazen serpent, the serpent of brass that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We can read about that serpent and that uh, situation in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. Children of Israel were starting to complain again about not having anything to eat in the wilderness. They spoke out against God and against Moses. They asked, why have you brought us out of Egypt and to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loathes this light bread. And God sent serpents, poisonous snakes. And many of them died because of the snake bites. And the people repented, and they asked Moses to take away these snakes. And the Bible says that Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord told him to make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And whoever was bitten by a poisonous snake was simply to look at that brazen serpent on the pole, and he would live. Look and live. The healing wasn't something they worked for. They simply obeyed. The healing wasn't something that made logical sense. They didn't have to understand it. They simply obeyed. They put their trust in what God said through Moses, and they lived. As Moses lifted up the serpent of brass, brass speaks of judgment. Jesus was the one who hung on the cross for us. He took God's judgment on your sin, in your place. He was lifted up. And if you'll believe what God said, you will have eternal life, John 3.15. We sing a hymn often, I have a message from the Lord, hallelujah, a message unto you I give. Tis recorded in his word, hallelujah, it is only that you look and live. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wandered into a primitive Methodist church and he heard a, a preacher that day, it was a snowy day, and he couldn't go to where he intentionally planned to go that day. And the preacher preached from Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said, I listened to the word of God, and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. He was saved by looking to Christ. The statement is as true today as it was when Jesus spoke it to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Are you like Nicodemus? You might know the scriptures, but you've never truly been born again. Come to Christ. He will save you. George Whitfield was a great evangelist in the 1700s. At the age of 16, he became deeply convicted of sin. 
And he tried to do everything religiously to erase the guilt of that sin. He wrote, I fasted for 36 hours twice a week. I prayed formal prayers several times a day and almost starved myself to death during Lent, but only felt more miserable. Then, by God's grace, I met Charles Wesley, who put a book in my hand which showed me from the scriptures that I must be born again or be eternally lost. Finally, by the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, George Whitfield came to understand Jesus' words in John 3. He believed, and he was gloriously saved. He became a preacher. He spoke at least a thousand times on the subject, ye must be born again. He fervently desired that all who heard him would experience the saving grace of Christ. In 1752, he wrote to a friend in America, Benjamin Franklin. He said, as I find you growing more and more famous in the world of letters, I recommend to your unprejudiced study the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important study, and if mastered, will abundantly repay you. I bid you, dear friend, remember that he, before whose bar we must both soon appear, has solemnly declared that without it, we shall in no wise see his kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And let's consider how we should respond to God's word this morning. Has the Holy Spirit of God spoken to you about someone who's unsaved? Someone like Nicodemus? You can explain the plan of salvation to them the same way Jesus explained things. You can use these very illustrations that are here. I wonder if you'd pray this morning, Lord, give me the opportunity to tell someone how to be born again. I wonder if that's your prayer, if you just slip up your hand and say, I'm asking God to to send someone across my path that I can witness to, that I can let them know how they can be born again. Amen. I wonder if you're here this morning and you would say with an uplifted hand, I'm not saved, but I need to be born again. Never happened in my life. I need to trust Christ as my Savior. Is anyone here like that this morning with an uplifted hand? I won't embarrass you. I'll just pray for you. I need to be born again. Anyone like that this morning? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the Spirit as he uses that word to challenge us, to convict us, to change us, to be better servants, to equip us to be better servants for you. And I pray that Today, you would burden our hearts with someone who needs to be saved and that we would make every effort to pray for them, to wait for the Spirit of God to move in their hearts, to share with them again and again the plan of salvation, to plead with them to trust Christ before it's too late. Use this service to give us an urgency to witness to those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.